X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, August 19th. Today, back in the day, August 19th, 1934, a referendum in Germany approved vesting sole executive power in Chancellor Adolf Hitler. After passage of the Enabling Act a year earlier and the banning of parties other than the Nazi party, President Paul von Hindenburg was the only check on Hitler's power. Hindenburg still had the legal right to dismiss Hitler from office, and that was now the only remedy by which Hitler could be legally dismissed. The referendum was held 17 days after von Hindenburg's death. Stormtroopers were stationed at polling stations. They forced clubs and societies to march to polling stations together, escorted by Nazi stormtroopers, and required to vote in public. In many places, polling booths were taken out, banners reading, only traitors enter here where there were private polling places. Many ballots were pre-marked with yes votes. Many unreadable ballots were counted as having been yes votes, and many no votes were recorded as yes votes. And on this day, back in the day, August 19, 1934, the referendum approved merging the office of chancellor and the president. Hitler took both titles and gave himself the title Fuhrer. In fact, Hitler had assumed those offices previously, immediately upon Hindenburg's death, and used the referendum just to legitimize the move. And to be clear, that country had no vote by mail. And today, back in the day, Catherine Clark died. Catherine Clark was born in 1873, the same year as her cousin, Oswald West, who would be elected governor of Oregon in 1910. Women in Oregon achieved the vote in 1912, and the November 1914 elections were the first in which women were eligible to seek office in the legislature. And after Douglas County Judge Dexter Rice turned down the position, Governor West appointed his cousin Catherine Clark to that state Senate seat. There were questions about West's power to the point, and the upcoming legislative session, which was supposed to begin in January, set a special election for January 20th to decide the seat. After mass meetings in Douglas County, an endorsement by the city newspaper, Clark won that special election by 76 votes. Two other women were elected as state senators in the United States that year, Helen Ring Robinson of Colorado and Frances Willard Munns of Arizona. The three were featured in the International Women's Suffrage News and the Women's Journal and Suffrage News as examples of women taking the next step in citizenship after gaining the right to vote. In 1915, Catherine Clark became a member of the Oregon branch of the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage and began to work for the passage of a federal women's suffrage amendment. After completing her term in the state Senate, she moved to California. And she died today, back in the day, August 19th, 1940. X-ray. First up, a very quick, quick six. Night 80 of protests and no signs of slowing down. There was a calm, a crash, then conflict. Night 80 of protests started like any other. There was food, chanting, speeches from black community leaders outside the Justice Center. But tensions escalated late Sunday night, leaving a motorist hospitalized after being attacked by protesters. Witnesses report the driver was driving recklessly and trying to run over protesters, although this has not been verified. There were also reports the man was drinking and yelling racist slurs. One report, the man threatened someone with a hatchet. The man crashed his truck into a light pole around 10.30 p.m. A small group of protesters pulled him from the car, kicked, punched, and pushed him to the ground. Some other protesters tried to hold the assailants back during the attack. Eventually, the driver was taken away in an ambulance. Several videos of the incident have been posted to social media. Some of the attackers have been doxxed online, although no arrests were made on Sunday night. Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt was quick to condemn the assailants' actions. 
and Schmidt said his office is coordinating with law enforcement to investigate the incident. And to keep the protests in perspective, the Oregonian released new data about police violence in Portland. Since 2003, Portland police have shot and killed 39 people. Those killed were disproportionately black. 65 officers were involved in those killings, and of those 65, none were disciplined or found guilty of wrongdoing. 56 of them still work as local officers. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, some good news. 192 new coronavirus cases. That doesn't sound great, but no new deaths. That's the lowest number of new cases in a month, and again, no new deaths. Since the pandemic began, Oregon has reported 23,451 cases and 388 deaths. The biggest county, Multnomah County, leads in new cases with 57, followed by Marion County, right around Salem, that had 30 new cases. And 93,000 more people have been added to the Oregon Health Plan. That's Oregon's Medicaid plan. It's grown 8.6% since the start of the pandemic. OHP provides health insurance for low- and no-income Oregonians. Health officials have made some policy changes to help new people enroll and help existing plan members maintain their coverage. Monthly income needs to be quite low to qualify. Maximum income is just over $1,400. And those new additions to health plan offer some additional context about how hard many people have been hit by this pandemic. The animation studio Leica has laid off 15% of its workers just days after celebrating its 15th anniversary. The studio says it intends to rehire those people at an unspecified future date. The job cuts will take effect September 1st. Like his most recent film, Missing Link, won the Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature in 2019. Other films include Coraline and Paranorman. Oregon senators proposed a bill to restrict the use of eminent domain for pipelines. State senators introduced two bills that would increase state and private property rights in order to protect lands in the path of pipelines. Land that can be taken and used by the federal government for projects in the public interest, that's called eminent domain. The 1938 Natural Gas Act says there's a public interest in construction of natural gas pipelines. So right now, land can be taken using eminent domain for pipeline projects. These new bills, written by Senator Jeff Merkley, would stop eminent domain from being used in for-profit pipeline projects. It would also take away federal permission for the seizure of state land. These bills could have a direct effect on the controversial Jordan Cove pipeline. The Jordan Cove pipeline has faced criticism from state senators, tribal governments, and environmentalists. Critics expect the project will harm a wide variety of species and will emit 2 million tons of carbon every year. The bill focuses more on property rights than environmentalism. Here is Senator Jeff Merkley's quote. It is just absolutely inappropriate for a for-profit company who's exporting gas to be able to take away private property rights. The bills could be introduced as soon as September when the Senate returns to session. Don't Shoot Portland is asking a federal judge to hold the Portland police in contempt of court. Back in June, a federal judge issued a court order that restricted Portland police use of tear gas and impact munitions. It was one of many legal cases brought against the Portland Police Bureau and federal law enforcement in Portland. And now the nonprofit Don't Shoot Portland is moving to hold the Portland police in contempt of that court order. Don't Shoot Portland says the police have still used rubber bullets and batons that they've bull rushed the crowd. And city lawyers arguing on behalf of the police say the police bureau has complied with a June 26 restraining order. This time, Don't Shoot Portland is asking the court to prevent Portland police from using impact munitions in any crowd control situation. They also want to ban police officers who have violated the court order for participating in future crowd control. And the Cajun Soda Pop company Swamp Pop is moving to Oregon. The popular company founded in 2013 is moving its headquarters to Clackamas. The company is owned by Louisiana to Portland transplant Chris Fontenot. He founded the Southern-style food cart A Cajun Life and now sells Cajun seasonings and products. Swamp Pop offers Southern-tinged flavors like filet root beer and praline cream soda. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. 
X-Ray. And today we have an interview with Brooke Jackson Glidden, Portland editor of Eater. Brooke has an update on the restaurant scene in Portland. Since Portland has reopened for the first phase of Oregon's reopening plan, a number of the city's bars and restaurants have learned to adapt to welcome back patrons. Though others have not been so lucky and some continue to fight to keep their doors open. We're joined now by Brooke Jackson Glidden, editor for Eater Portland, to hear about the latest goings on in the Portland restaurant scene. Brooke, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Where have you been eating or getting takeaway from lately? Oh, gosh, everywhere. Um, <laughs> I have really enjoyed recent takeout at places like Gato Gato. Um, Chins being reopened is really exciting for me. Um, and I have to admit, I have a real ramen habit. So I've been <laughs> visiting a few different ramen shops and getting takeout. Fantastic. Thanks for those ideas. Um, are there any new openings that folks should be paying attention to? Totally. Um, I am sort of blown away. It's it's amazing how much pizza can sort of enter the Portland restaurant market. and People seem endlessly sated by it. Um, there's a new pizza place, Pop Pizza, um, that has opened. Um, and it's sort of like something like a Detroit style. It's really thick. Um, so that's a, a recent opening. Um, there's also up on Williams a new toast-centric restaurant. Um, it's called Kimura Toast Bar, and it's all sort of centered around shokupan, which is um, a Japanese milk bread. Um, huh. That the place is pretty much almost exclusively serving toasts and different things on top of that specific bread that they've sort of just fine-tuned um, with just endless sort of um, recipe tests. So that's sort of a cute new spot. Um, and then there's also a new food hall um, in Montevilla, Rocket Empire Machine, which has several different cuisines represented. Um, you have everything from Somali food to Oaxacan food. It's, it's a really exciting addition to that neighborhood. Wow. Well, I'm so glad to hear that Portland's restaurant scene has not disappointed. They're still thinking creatively and, and pushing to open in the middle of the global pandemic. Um, I'm afraid. Absolutely. I'm afraid to ask this, but are there are there closures that folks should be aware of? Yep, and unfortunately, that's true. There have been recent closures. Um, the whiskey bar on Hawthorne um, called Neat has closed. Mm-hmm. Um, Coffee Club as well. Um, so bars, you've noticed, we've noticed, um, have been hit recently. Um, it hasn't been as bad as um, the wave of closures earlier in the year. Um, but we are seeing some bars that are closing or places that are leaving their current space. Um, okay. Abyssinian Kitchen has left its space, but they plan to reopen in a new space down the line. Got it. So downtown Portland food cart, Small Pharaoh, is also now closed but and due to a spreading illness, but it's not COVID-19. What can you tell us about the food cart's closure? Yes. So the closure of Small Pharaoh is surprisingly not related to COVID-19. It is related to something else, um, shigellosis, which is an infection of the intestine that's caused by um, a bacteria called Shigella. Um, it's not fun. It's We're talking like diarrhea, fever, vomiting, um, really unpleasant sort of food poisoning style symptoms. Um, it's really contagious. So last I heard from the health department, there were four different people who dined at that cart um, have confirmed cases mm. and there were three more that were presumed so um, they really wanted to shut that down 
prevent any further spread. Um, so they actually close the car. That's that's a, a rare thing for Multnomah County Health Department to do. Okay. Okay. And so with more than 20,000 total cases, we know Oregon isn't out of the woods with COVID-19 in most counties. On-site dining is allowed in some form, but the role of restaurants in spreading COVID is unclear. And that's partly because the contact tracers aren't asking Oregonians which restaurants they're visiting. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's interesting. You look in other states and there really has been an effort and evidence that, you know, you know, packed in bars and, and certain restaurant spaces have contributed to the spread of COVID-19. You're especially seeing this in certain places in the South. Louisiana had an experience like this. Um, and in Oregon, what we've heard pretty consistently from health officials is that there isn't necessarily evidence um, that there is significant spread at bars and restaurants. Now, that statement, however, isn't necessarily based on any data that we can find because contact tracers aren't getting to the point where they're asking that question of which restaurants people have visited, uh, which bars they've gone to, if they've gone to any restaurants or bars. Hmm. Um, so we don't really have a great idea of that. If you look at, um, you know, the every week um, OHA will release information um, about different workplace breakouts. Uh, outbreaks of uh, COVID-19 and you will see you know the occasional restaurant will be listed there um, you know you might see just a handful you know uh, about a dozen in certain cases where things are sort of significant sometimes in the single digits um, but the people who dine at that restaurant are not contacted in those cases huh. so we don't really know very well um, how restaurants and bars are contributing to that spread if they're contributing to that spread and, um, you know, if our even our social distancing within those spaces is working in certain cases, you know, um, I will say that compared to some states, we we have been sort of stringent with um, the way that we've um, instituted social distancing and, and mask wearing, um, especially certain uh, places in the south. Um, but we don't necessarily have a very good idea based on data, based on how data is collected whether or not restaurants are contributing. Wow. Is it, do you have any insight into why contact tracers aren't asking about restaurants? I mean, that seems like a pretty significant <laughs> opportunity right. to, to contain the virus. Right. So um, I will say that, um, again, health officials have said that generally it has to do with uh, the number of contract tracers that are available uh, okay. and yeah. the length of the interview already. Um, uh. People are trying not, you know, because resources are slim there aren't as many contact tracers they have a lot to do um the interviews are about an hour long they, they don't want to extend those too far so they can get people out to as many people as possible in, in a, an urgent situation um so you know and thomas told um opb that the health oha health advisor that quote we can't ask every little thing that you or i think uh, or would want to know so, you know, I think that that was such an interesting response because some people would think that that should be top priority, that it could be a significant spread. But according to OHA, it's not as high priority. It's not as, as clear of an indicator. We just don't know. Yeah. Now, bartenders have been pushing to legalize to-go cocktails in Oregon, seeing it as a lifeline for bars who are struggling with the financial impact of this pandemic. Has there been any, any momentum on the possibility of to-go cocktails? Yeah, so this is, 
you know, such a huge topic with the bar community um, because they see it as a certain lifeline. Um, you know, if you look at other states where to-go cocktails are legal, some people have called it a lifesaver. You know, it's this opportunity for another form of uh, revenue uh, where you might not have one, um, especially if you don't feel ready to open or if you're in a space where you can't really open and social distance, like one of those tiny little dive bars, which I think we all know. Um, but, you know, there has been movement um, from some representatives. Rob Nose has uh, a bill drafted that would legalize uh, to-go cocktails. But, you know, it's really tough to get uh, a bill like that on a special session agenda, um, just because there's so much right now, and it, it comes down to sort of triage of how, what, do we, what are we going to get mm-hmm. done in a single special session. Um, I will say that, you know, in certain other states, it's pretty easy to, to legalize a to-go cocktail from a restaurant, um, but because of the way the Oregon law is written, you have to kind of go through the legislature. You can't just, you know, the, the OLCC can't just sort of like open those floodgates. It, it has to go through this, this channel and there isn't, it, it's not hitting the top of the pile when mm-hmm. they're, when they go into special session. Got it. Okay. That's really helpful. And I know the recovery community also has raised concerns about to go alcohol in general and, the beer and uh, beer and wine are now available to go cocktails would would be another significant concern in the recovery community. So we'll keep an absolutely we'll keep an eye. I, on I that. think that um, you you know you can't ignore the impact that you know um, many recovery advocates are saying that alcohol is easier to access right now. When that happens, you know support systems services are really limited and stress is really high. That can really increase or exacerbate the the possibility of relapse. Right. I want to get back to what we talked about last time. Um, The last time you spoke with us, we discussed a reckoning in the Portland restaurant scene um, over charges of discrimination, sexual harassment, and toxic management. Since then, have there been any updates that people should be aware of? You know, I will say that there, if you were to follow 86 list on Instagram, Mm -hmm. there are pretty constant, um, posts on that Instagram talking about particular issues and what is what has been an interesting thing to watch is that specific um, collectives anonymous collectives of workers are creating their own Instagram accounts to talk about specific um, issues at um, specific restaurants or within specific restaurant groups Um, so you know I would say that it's at a point where there are so many coming in that trying to tackle all of them is wow. such a task because it's it's so rampant and there are so many people who are coming out right now and sharing. I think that listeners, it's worth. Oh my gosh! Sorry about that. Um, there, um, it's really worth to follow that Instagram to to get an idea um, because you know it's it it is so pervasive and it is so constant that these sort of um, claims are coming out. Yeah. And now I've had fr- uh, conversations with friends about some of the claims and sort of like, how, how can we help? What, what are, what's your advice? What can we as patrons Absolutely. do to support restaurants and ensure or support healthy workplace environments? Yep, absolutely. Um, I think that there is, you know, this is something that I've, I've been talking about with a, cert, uh, a few number of uh, restaurant owners right now. Um, there 
when someone makes a claim like this and, and says it publicly, um, you know, there there's often a conversation with restaurant owners where they go, well, there's no opportunity to have a real conversation about this. Mm. Um, I think that diners have the opportunity if they see a restaurant that they really like and, and really, um, you know, a, a restaurant owner that they really trust, um, reaching out to them and having a conversation about where is this coming from and um, what are you doing about it. That public pressure, I think, will really impact a restaurant. Um, if, if people see that it's having an impact on their diners, they're going to be more inclined to try to address that issue. Um, being able to just sort of ignore it and brush it away. Um, or, you know, that that is going to end up being more detrimental. Um, and having the opportunity to have a real conversation um, as the person who impacts their, their diners more than anybody else, more than me, more than anybody else, your customers are, are more impactful on a business than anybody else. So if you're having that conversation with your restaurant owners that you trust and you're seeing their name on a, on a place like 86 list, Mm-hmm. That that pressure and that that um, n- way of communicating that you are paying attention, restaurant owners will pay attention to that. They'll understand that. So I think it's absolutely worth it to to follow lists like that, see what's being said, and um, you know hold folks accountable. Ask ask questions. That you know some people they get into the situation where it's like, well, people could make up anything. People could say anything on a place like that. Yeah. Well, the only way for people to find that out is to have conversations about where those things are coming from and talk to as many people as you can talk to people who are not just a restaurant owner talk to servers talk to if you are at a party and you run into somebody who works at a restaurant that you see on 86 list maybe ask what's the culture like there because you know this is a community and you'll you know when people talk about those whisper whisper networks um if if you're talking to people in the restaurant industry you'll end up a part of those whisper networks. You'll be able to sort of get a gauge for what an environment is like in a particular restaurant. Yeah. Thank you for that. And Brooke, this is the work you do every day. Thank you so much for, for gathering up all the headlines and giving us updates. Where can folks find your work? Absolutely. We are at pdx.eater.com. Excellent. Brooke, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Brooke Jackson-Glidden, the editor for Eater Portland. You can find her work at pdx.eater.com. Thanks to Brooke for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. That's right.